For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. The California legislature has passed two different pieces of legislation to further curb and regulate hunting. We covered the first one, AB 273, which will abolish all fur trapping just in the state of California in an article on TheMeatEater.com. But there's a second one I feel inclined to discuss here, AB 1245, which will place a moratorium on all bobcat hunting until 2025, five years down the road. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife could potentially reopen the season after completing a new management plan. Opponents of the bill allege that this is really just a hunting ban cloaked in faux sheepskin. <coughs> Creating a new management plan will cost roughly $2.5 million, money they say the legislature won't allocate when the time comes, in which case bobcat hunting would remain permanently closed. Advocates for the bill claim that the bobcat hunting in the state is unnecessary and purely about killing trophy animals for sport. Bobcat hunting bans have been popping up all over the country in recent years. A proposed ban in Colorado failed to pass this spring, but we're likely to see that one come up again. The issue with these bans isn't so much about the importance or popularity of hunting bobcats, but rather the lack of understanding of our model of conservation that's baked into this kind of rulemaking. Like it or not, North American conservation is intimately tied to hunting, fishing, and trapping. On a practical level, these activities provide the lion's share of money for land and habitat management and acquisition. Those tags and licenses we buy, they fund the agencies that oversee all our wildlife. Sportsmen and women generously support nonprofit organizations that do great things for our wildlife and the places they live. 
Beyond that, the people really working and advocating for wildlife species are the people with the most direct and intimate relationships to those animals. That would be us, the hunters, anglers, and trappers. Regardless of your personal opinion on hunting, it's difficult to argue the effectiveness of American game management practices as those are deeply tied to hunting and hunters. Let's take bobcats as a case study. For much of this country's history, bobcats were treated as a nuisance species and nearly went extinct. Since the 1970s, as a direct result of our model of conservation, their numbers have recovered. There are now believed to be over 3 million bobcats in the U.S. The population is doing well. Banning the limited bobcat hunting that we currently have won't help increase that population. Even the advocates of this ban admit that fact. Hunters aren't killing so many cats that we're impacting the species. Often, when we see legislation like this, it's because people promote focusing on an individual, not a species. That's not how wildlife management works. What it will do, however, is take away one more revenue opportunity to fund wildlife management and alienate one more group of folks who want to spend time in the woods. If California really wanted to do something great for bobcats, they'd dramatically increase the price of tags, which are currently way too low at less than four bucks, and use that money to protect critical habitat. It's a hard argument to wrap our heads around, but hunters shooting individual animals aren't hurting bobcats as a population. Land development kills a lot more animals than hunters, especially in California. I encourage everyone to read up and better understand the North American model of conservation so we can address these arguments as they continue to pop up, which they will. Also, let's get that damn wildlife overpass over the 101. For the record, I'm not bashing California as a state. You all have lots of beautiful land and people. In fact, my one issue is that the people there are just a little too attractive, a little too put together, if you will. I'm more of a road hard, put away wet kind of guy. I'm a fan of things with scars and stories. Things you know have taken some beatings but still keep getting after it. Good time to remind you that Cal's Week in Review is powered by steel power equipment. My battery-powered steel chainsaw looks like it might have tumbled down the side of a mountain, but it still works just as well as the day I got it. Which is more than I can say for some other things I know have actually fallen off the side of a mountain, but I'll get to that later. This week, we're covering the recovery of New York City's whales, Vikings hunting walruses, Michiganders and moose, and so much more. But first, let me tell you about my week. As I told you last week, in episode 21, I stumbled into an amazing opportunity to hunt elk in New Mexico, a state I love. I'm actually sitting in a real live New Mexican's living room, recording this in Daddle, New Mexico. You know, Daddle. It's right next to Pie Town. New Mexico is the only state I've heard of that opted to name a town through a TV show contest. You've probably heard of Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Well, it used to be called Hot Springs. Then along came Bob Barker and... uh, I'm just not going to get into that because I've got a ton to tell you about from this adventure. The high highs and low lows of elk hunting while surrounded by the state of enchantment, which is the New Mexico state motto, which is amazing. Quick example of a high is calling in an incredibly large bull, watching him drop off one mountain, cross a creek bed, climb the mountain on a direct line to me. Then a larger unseen bull comes out of the timber, cutting him off. The two bulls square off, smash antlers. The interloper from the opposite hillside spins the larger bull in an incredibly athletic football-esque move. 
maybe a la Najee Harris if you're a Bama fan. The bull continues up the mountain at full speed, only to slow to a quiet cat-like pace as he hunts out the source of the cow call in the high, sparse New Mexican timber, eventually stopping perfectly broadside, slightly out of breath, at 20 yards. The only thing between himself and myself, a few tangled, weather-whipped branches, just enough to prevent any ethical shot. No path for my arrow. At this point, you can breathe again and actually study the amazing, beautiful, powerful animal in front of you. Watch him decipher his own set of clues. See the wheels turn as he figures out that he's been duped. Maybe. Or mistaken. Maybe he comes to the conclusion that there were no cows looking for love on that mountainside. Lows come with the highs, and I'll get into the real details in an upcoming article on TheMeatEater.com. An arrow released, an ill-timed torrential monsoon, a mid-afternoon nap on a spider nest, a bloodless blood trail. Feeling the gears of my own head spin as I decipher the clues in front of me. I love elk hunting. I also love what I describe as bycatch, the things I find outside of my primary quarry. One find in New Mexico I always look forward to is the horned toad. There are 14 species of horned lizards, all belonging to the family Iguanidae, seven of which can be found in the American Southwest, but the horned lizards can be found from British Columbia to Guatemala. Aside from their spines, which can be soft or hard enough to actually rupture the throat of a snake, the horned toad is known for its ability to change colors, to match its surroundings, and their ability to shoot blood from their eyes as a defense mechanism, which they don't actually do unless they are incredibly stressed out, so, you know, it's a bad thing. If you can watch one, they'll shuffle themselves into the sand or loose dirt until only their heads and maybe a spine or two from their backs are exposed. They eat almost exclusively ants typically 70 to 100 per day. As you can imagine, ants are incredibly hard to digest, so their stomach actually takes up 13% of their entire body. A lot of undigestible matter there. So don't try and take them home, no matter how many ants you think you have on hand. This species is a character, as they try like hell to get away, but once caught, seem resigned to sit in your hand. Like fate will take care of them. And yes, the horned toad is actually a horned lizard, not a toad. New Mexico is home to the Texas horned lizard, the mountain shorthorned, and the round-tailed horned lizard. The Texas horned lizard does not carry a sidearm at all times, but it does have the ability to catch rainwater with its back and shoot blood from its eyes as far as four feet. Both the Texas horned lizard and the round-tailed horned lizard lay eggs, while, interestingly enough, the mountain short horned lizard gives birth to live young. Anyway, it's really cool stuff and just another example of things you find with a great elk tag in your pocket as an excuse. One more fun fact for you before we get into the serious stuff. I did a lot of hunting while overlooking the VLA. The VLA is an acronym that stands for Very Large Array, which is a series of 27 independent radio telescope antennas, each of which has a dish diameter of 82 feet and weighs 230 tons. The antennas are shaped in a Y configuration, each arm being 13 miles long. As you can imagine, this setup brings in a lot of information, which I'm told is primarily used by astronomers to study the stars and told by some to probably track down those aliens that end up in uh, Area 51. Better get your running shoes on. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, We have to know these things, but how do we figure it all out? 
That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure my stuff is taken care of even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com cal. That's meetfabric.com cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. You've heard that name before because I've talked about them here on this podcast. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. Now, it's wild axis deer, which is an invasive species, but this operation is monitored and observed by the USDA, and they can commercially sell axis deer. Last time I went out to uh, Maui to hunt axis, I did not kill one, which is where Maui Nui Venison would come in very handy for folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful and still want to have something in the freezer or uh, handy in the form of a snack stick that is as close to getting your own as you can get which is what Maui Nui Venison is. You can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Anyway, moving on and backing up. Last week, we touched on how the Clean Water Act is about to be stripped down, allowing for more pollution and habitat destruction across America. If you need any further convincing that this is a bad idea, then let me tell you about a whale of a story out of New York City. Literally. In recent years, scientists and tourists alike have been pleasantly surprised by the growing number of whale pods in the New York Harbor. 20 years ago, a humpback within eyesight of the city was an unimaginable scene, even though the area is part of their native range. Who would blame the whales for abandoning the Big Apple, though? As National Geographic put it in a recent article, quote, the waters around New York City were some of the most polluted in the world, a toxic stew of chemicals and garbage. Thanks to a successful environmental policy, such as the Endangered Species Act, Marine Mammal Protection Act, and Clean Water Act, the whales have returned. When pollution levels started to fall, zooplankton started to rise. As zooplankton populations took off, so did menhaden, an oily, schooling fish that whales gorge on. In less than a decade, the whale population has increased by, get ready, 7,540%. From five whales in 2011 to 377 whales in 2019. It's a positive trend, but these whales need all the help they can get. 
Ship strikes and fishing gear entanglement in the New York Harbor are enormous threats to these enormous creatures, and any repeals to the Clean Water Act threatens to negate their amazing progress. This is your regular reminder to call a congressman or woman today and tell them to get their heads straight on the Clean Water Act. Moving on, but sticking with the big marine critters. Researchers have known for years that walruses once called Iceland home. The large tusked creatures disappeared from the island about 700 years ago, and until recently, it was assumed that the walruses fled the area shortly after humans showed up, a behavior typical of marine life in the North Atlantic. In this hypothesis, the cows and calves would have been the first to leave, finding refuge with fellow walruses that lived on Greenland. The bulls would have followed soon thereafter, with the Icelandic group contributing to the large genetic community that exists among modern-day walruses. However, fresh research suggests that walruses didn't migrate off the island, but instead were extirpated by Vikings. That's a fancy word for killed by Vikings. The smoking gun that supports this theory is carbon-dated walrus bones and new genetic data. The carbon-dated bones show that the walruses disappeared shortly after Vikings arrived, and the new genetic data doesn't match that of walruses found anywhere else in the world. Why did the Vikings wage war on these giant, slow creatures? For their ivory, of course. Medieval hunting accounts note that walrus ivory was a valuable commodity at the time and that ivory trade was a popular practice by Vikings. This is one of the earliest examples of commercially driven over-exploitation and is a good reminder of how delicate our marine resources are. Vikings were able to eradicate an entire species off of a 40,000 square mile island and did so without the help of guns, motorized ships, GPS, big fishing nets, or any other modern day convenience. I want you to think of that the next time somebody tells you that folks are trying to eradicate a species. Typically right now, with all the technology at hand, it'd be pretty darn easy if we put our minds to it. On the subject of humans wiping out species, let me tell you about the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, which is home to millions of birds and tens of thousands of caribou. For clarity, the National Petroleum Reserve has absolutely nothing to do with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is the big store of oil that our government has stockpiled in case of emergency. Despite its confusing, and I might argue poorly chosen name, the National Petroleum Reserve, or NPR for short, is actually the largest chunk of public ground in the United States. 22 million acres. It's on Alaska's North Slope, just to the west of another huge block of public land, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR. ANWR gets a lot of press, but its larger neighbor goes mostly unmentioned. President Harding established the NPR back in 1923 after native tribes showed Yankee sailors raw crude bubbling up from the ground. Kind of like a far north version of the Jed Clampett story. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. That's a Beverly Hillbillies reference, in case you missed it. Anyway, back in the early 20s, our naval fleet was just switching from coal to oil power. The NPR was originally named Naval Petroleum Reserve No. 4, as it was one of four sites around the country that held contingency fuel reserves for the Navy. The NPR got renamed in 1976 when Congress passed the Naval Reserves Petroleum Act and ownership of the land transferred from the Navy to the Bureau of Land Management. The following year, the BLM set aside three sections of the reserve as critical habitat for wildlife, specifically migratory birds and caribou. 
One of those sections near, boy, I'm going to screw this up, Teshekpuk Lake is now slated for potential development. We're talking about a huge expanse of wetlands that makes for prime breeding habitat for shorebirds, waterfowl, owls, and other ground nesting birds. Think of it like Fort Lauderdale spring break for birds. More than 6 million shorebirds descend on Alaska's North Slope from all over the globe every summer just to party. Birds like the bar-tailed godwit that make a 7,000-mile non-stop migration from New Zealand, the longest in the world. And, like those hormone-fueled college kids, there's a reason these birds go through all the trouble to travel so far from home, to get away from prying eyes, so to speak. Only in the case of the birds, they're not trying to avoid parents, campus cops, or academic deans. They're trying to avoid predators, particularly foxes that have a keen taste for bird eggs. The current administration is trying to change the rules for development in this area and open up more of it to oil drilling and transportation in the form of roads and pipelines. Oil development in this area will disturb this massive avian orgy and the same roads that carry in trucks and equipment will also give predators a way in, allowing them to plow through all the easy protein sitting in those ground nests. This matters because shorebird populations aren't doing so well in general. Nearly 60% of North American species and 50% worldwide are in long-term decline. Much of the issues that these birds are facing are on the other end of their long migration routes, but up here, they still have a safe place to get busy and raise their young. If we take away this last safe haven, we won't be doing them any favors. Then there's the 58,000 caribou in the Teshekpuk herd that live in this area year-round and are a stable of subsistence hunters. Caribou tend to avoid development and humans in general, since, you know, those hunters harvest around 4,000 of them per year. So no one's really sure how development might impact this herd. In fact, no one's totally sure how proposed development might impact the birds either, and that's really the main point. I get the need for oil independence and that this particular place seems to have a lot of it, but we've had rules and restrictions for development of this incredible untouched landscape for several generations now, and they've worked out pretty well. Earlier this year, a coalition of five conservation groups and the local native village of, I'm going to call it Nuxut, uh, we'll have to print this one online, N-U-I-Q-S-U-T, took the BLM to court claiming that all the exploratory development they've been doing around the NPR, drilling test wells and building ice roads, was done without the proper and necessary environmental studies. If that's any indication of how the broader project is going to happen, it seems like cause for concern. Before we go messing up something that's working pretty darn well, we should take the time to figure out what those impacts will be. To borrow a different land use analogy, you don't start a controlled burn without first being damn sure about the control part. Otherwise, you're just setting stuff on fire. And finally, speaking of caribou, they are part of one of North America's largest science experiments. Isle Royale, which is a 207 square mile island in Lake Superior, something you may remember from way back on episode 2 of Cal's Week in Review, it's owned by the state of Michigan, even though it's closer to Minnesota and Canada. You may recall Mediator's coverage of the island in episode 172 of the podcast, where Steve, Giannis, Spencer, Newharth, and Pat Durkin discussed the island's shrieking wolf population. On Isle Royale, native caribou were extirpated in the 1920s to replace the big deer humans brought in an even bigger deer, moose. The island's moose population is the highest it's been in 20 years, which is likely because the island's wolf population is the lowest it's been in 100 years. To see how the increasing number of moose will affect Isle Royale's vegetation, researchers conducted a feces analysis of the moose for a closer look at their diet. 
What they learned is that moose are damn picky eaters. When conditions are favorable and predation and snow aren't a factor, moose will eat the rarest of rare plants available. This means that if balsam fir is rare in their home range, they'll selectively eat it. But if it's the most common plant around, they'll opt for something else. Biologists aren't sure if the Isle Royale moose are just fancy eaters or if they biologically favor a balanced diet. The study suggests that it's the latter, and I can agree with that. I, too, try to have a balanced diet. You know, like a little elk with my walleye and a side of turkey with my whitetail. All right, that's all I've got for you this week. Tell some friends if you want more Cal's Week in Review. Leave me a review by hitting that furthest right-hand star and subscribe. Let me know how I'm doing at askcalatthemeateater.com. That's A-S-K-C-A-L at themeateater.com. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks, sent right to your door visit mauinuivenison.com that's m-a-u-i-n-u-i venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order